Are you a fan of wine but hate the high sugar content in most wines? Then allow me to introduce you to Dry Farm Wines. Visit their website dryfarmwines.com and you'll find a keto-friendly, sugar-free, carb-free, all-natural, organic, and additive-free wine. It's also low alcohol for good health and it has no negative impact on your ketone levels. Again, they're called Dry Farm Wines. Check them out, dryfarmwines.com. Are you looking for an online store that would have all your ketogenic products in one place? Then let me introduce you to OneStopKeto.com. Once you get there, you'll see personally selected products by me, and they do have the largest selection of keto-friendly products. There are no membership fees, and you'll get free shipping on all orders over $99. Use the coupon code KETOTALK for an additional special discount for listeners of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and the Doc. They ship to the U.S. and Canada, and they have five-star amazing customer service. If you have any questions and looking for specific products, they are there for you. So head on over to OneStopKeto.com. Coming up in episode 1218, Dr. Benjamin Bigman. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of live that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author. You're like the LL Cool J of podcast. Jimmy Moore. Hey, hey, guys. We're back here on the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore, and I'm very privileged to welcome to the podcast a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Bickman. He earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders. Currently, his professional focus is as a scientist and professor at BYU, and it's to better understand chronic modern-day diseases with a special emphasis on the origins and consequences of obesity and diabetes with an increasing scrutiny on the pathogenicity of insulin and insulin resistance. Boy, we need a lot more people researching this, Ben. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jimmy. I'm thrilled to be here. And you've also been published uh, many times in peer-reviewed journals, and you present at international science meetings, and you're going to be at a meeting that you and I both will be sharing the stage at, Low Carb Breckenridge, coming up in Colorado at the end of February. So real excited about that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, too. It'll be my first not- strictly academic meeting if you know what i mean it'll be more party (laughs) yes yes that's right (laughs) quite frankly i had not heard of you until jeff gerber and rod taylor put you on that schedule and then you wrote me and said hey can i come on the podcast and talk about you know what you wanted to talk about here today with insulin resistance and i'm like uh yeah yeah you sound interesting man so uh let's back up a little bit let's talk about you and your story how you got interested in this subject to begin with yeah, that's a great question. When I started my undergraduate degree, I was I'm uh, not not a meathead, not at all, but but certainly I, my main f- interest was how the body 
was adapting to exercise. So I was studying a lot of muscle function, and I continued that through my master's degree. Did you play in football in, in high school or no, college? Oh. No, no. So I'm from a little town in Alberta, and it was basketball or nothing. Ah. And so it was and a little bit of basketball. you were too short for basketball? <laughs> well, it was a little bit of basketball, and then, ah. yeah, I quickly became too short to go much further point with guard. It. You know, Muggsy, yeah, that's, Muggsy that's Bogues right. was, what, five foot one in the NBA. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and I, I tower over that. So uh, maybe, I, maybe, I, I, maybe I missed my calling. I, basketball might have been... My, my calling anyway. So I focused on muscle adaptation. But then in the course of that master's degree, I, I came across some articles looking at the effects of uh, obesity on inflammation. And I was, I was dumbfounded to learn that the fat cells, adipocytes, produce inflammatory proteins, cytokines. And I thought, I had never heard that before. The fats themselves, you, you, the fat, the body yeah. fat itself does that. That's right, yeah. So it was basically me learning that body fat, our fat tissue, is an endocrine organ secreting hormones. Of course, now we know that it secretes countless numbers of dozens of identified hormones. And, and, and many of these are these inflammatory proteins. And then in looking at that, it started to shift my interest, whereas I had previously been interested in the body's adaptation to exercise, I was becoming more and more interested in the body's adaptation to obesity. How, how is the body trying to maintain homeostasis as it's um, starting to accumulate fat tissue, which is, um, of course, wreaking havoc. It's, it's increasing disease risk. Yep. And it kept... The, the more I was looking into this, the more I was realizing that there is no truly successful adaptation to obesity. It's it's sort of purely, if you will, pathogenic, although I appreciate the need for body fat. We need it, of course. It's a protective measure. People sometimes that's, that's, demone it and don't realize, you know, that body fat's probably protecting you from something much worse than obesity. That, yeah, that's right. We, we need the body fat uh, as a protection for any number of things. We just need to keep it in, in a good range. Right. And so that, by and large, uh, you know, hop, skip, and a jump, it got me to insulin resistance and, and as, the, as what I call the great mediator. Not only is it preceding demonstrable or noticeable fat gain, but it's also connecting obesity to virtually every chronic disease. When we talk about obesity increasing the risk of heart disease or cancers, certain cancers or infertility or whatever it may yeah. be, there's evidence that insulin resistance is either the key mediator or at least part of it. Now, and, did, and didn't we used to call insulin resistance metabolic syndrome? Are they synonymous or are those, those two totally different things? Yeah, great. Yeah, so Gerald Reven, when when we first were referring to the metabolic syndrome, the original uh, title of it was the insulin resistance syndrome, and now it's been changed to be a little more provocative. Metabolic syndrome. Everybody loves the word metabolism well, or metabolic did syndrome X there for a while too, which sounded yep, kind yep. of freaky. I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> yeah, that's like something the Joker does to Batman. Uh, syndrome something. X. Do you have the antidote? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So all of this brought me to insulin resistance. And so where I am now with my own lab is continuing to study the origins uh, and the consequences of insulin resistance. Like, for example, we have a study we're just about to submit looking at the effects of diesel exhaust and the fine particles that come from combustion of diesel and its effects on insulin resistance. Oh, wow. I've been behind yes, many an 18-wheeler lately that I'm sucking oh, in that yeah. diesel exhaust and going, all right, that doesn't feel very healthy coming into my lungs. <laughs> exactly. You need to replace your air filter in your car now, Jimmy. Oh, I, you know what I do when I get behind one of those and I see the black smoke starting to come, I do the recirculating inside the car so it doesn't yep. come in. So. <laughs> yep. Yeah, good for you. That's the way to do it. Yeah. 
So your website, we haven't given it yet, insuliniq.com, and you uh, are certainly an insulin resistance expert. And one of the big questions that I get as someone with pretty bad insulin resistance myself is how do you detect it? How do you measure? How do you know? Because, you know, quite frankly, a bunch of people probably are walking around now, may not quite be obese yet, but they're walking around with the with the signs and symptoms of insulin resistance and resistance and don't even know it yet. What can they do if they want to see where they are to see their level of insulin resistance? Yeah, great question. One of the problems uh, for so long and even now we, we look at because insulin resistance is a is a precursor to type two diabetes. It sort of gets lumped in with that, which is really unfortunate because the only real uh, you know consensus clinical marker for type two diabetes is fasting glucose. But the tragedy is that you could have someone who's been insulin resistant for well over a decade, but their glucose hasn't changed yet. In other words, insulin isn't working as well, and so the body needs more and more and more of it, but it's enough to keep blood glucose or blood sugar at a normal range. Can I stop you there for a second? Would you be able to see it in a fasting insulin level? Because you would think the fasting insulin level would go up precipitously uh, as that sluggishness of the blood sugar begins to start. Uh, Is that where it would start? Absolutely, yes. So that's just what I was going to get to. Oh, that that we, we've been looking My at it. No, no problem. <laughs> yeah, we've been looking at it as a glucose problem because we relate it to diabetes. But unfortunately, we're missing the true marker, which I contend is, in, is fasting insulin. So, but even then, it, unfortunately, there's not a consensus. Yeah. Uh, but but one of the best studies. Um, in my mind was one that looked like, for example, you could find, uh, you know, somewhat of a consensus saying that a fasting insulin below 12 is good. However, there was a study that found in, in postmenopausal women that the difference between the women who had fasting plasma levels of six uh, microunits versus eight, the women who had the eight microunits, I mean, that's a pretty small difference. Yeah, and very, both very of them, small. both of them are under that you know, that other sort of possibly consensus. Yeah. Yeah, That number of that 12. And yet those women who had just those couple points higher from six to eight, they had a significantly greater chance of developing type two diabetes over just the course of a few years. And so for me, generally I say six and below is, is in safe territory Then anything above that. Well, then it just sort of gets into increasing risk as it's going up. Of course, then you've got the postprandial response to the insulin, which may not show up in a fasting insulin. So you, You've, you've got to pay attention, obviously, to what's happening to your insulin levels after eating food, which is where kind of a low-carb ketogenic approach can come in uh, to the picture. Are, are you finding that the people, are, are you actually looking at mice or people in your research? What, what's the research like? Yeah, so my lab is is predominantly mechanistic. So we've just started, so in other words, uh, rodent and cell-based work. Sure. So we're really kind of getting into the nitty-gritty details of what's happening in the cell. However, we do collaborate with local surgeons. For example, um, we've started looking at, and this is, I, I almost don't want to get into this yet, and we can let it be a topic later if it's if, But wait, if necessary. there's more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but we've been looking at the effects of insulin on actual metabolic rate uh, in an effort, in a way, kind of in an effort to reconcile the two theories of obesity. You know, there's sort of been this quiet war that obesity yes. is purely a matter of calories. No, obesity is purely a matter of hormones. Right. And yet there really does seem to be some room for some reconciliation between these two paradigms. It could be both. It, 
Absolutely. And in fact, but it's still, I would, I, I submit, it still comes back to insulin, but insulin can affect the way calories are used. But nonetheless, we've started collaborating with a local um, bariatric surgeon to start getting human samples and start finding the relevance of this in, in humans as well. And, and so far, so good. It's looking positive, promising. So where I was going with my question was in regards to the diet, because we know a low insulogenic diet, a low inflammation diet, a, a diet that seems to help people with insulin resistance is one that is low in carbohydrates, one that tends to be higher in fat and produces ketones, a ketogenic diet. So how is that playing in your research at all? Yeah, yep. Yeah, so right. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head here. Um, no question. It's unfortunate that we forgot the lessons of the past where once upon a time, as you know, of course, carb, carbohydrate restriction was, was a staple of, of treatment for insulin resistance or, or diabetes of any kind. So I've heard. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, uh, but nonetheless, uh, we are particularly more and more appreciating the profound difference that insulin has with regards to fuel utilization versus ketones. Now, they're not, they're not comparable in that insulin is a hormone and ketones are a, a, well, a nutrient. It's an energy source. And so they're not the same. And yet they do um, and insulin, mind you, of course, as you know, as you well know, um, is the king over um, a ketone metabolism, and that's the key, as you mentioned, is having a diet that keeps your insulin sufficiently low that your ketones, that the fat, uh, the, the liver is breaking fat up into ketones, so it's activating ketogenesis or or not inhibiting ketogenesis. Right. It's allowing ketogenesis to go, and even that is an interesting development for me. I had only ever cared about keeping insulin low because I kept seeing that, boy, if, if insulin starts to climb, that's promoting atherosclerosis, that's promoting dementia, that's promoting testosterone release from the ovaries and, and, and any number of uh, prostate uh, tumor uh, growth. Um, but it's now in recent years that, of course, we're starting to appreciate that not only is it good to keep insulin low, but it's also um, activating the production of this other molecule that's ketones in particular that is they're doing all kinds of things absolutely I'm curious what your thoughts are and if you've done any research or seen any research on the role that fasting would play in someone with insulin resistance fasting in my opinion is just merely ketogenic diets sped up <laughs> Yeah, there's no question, right? Some of these wonderfully sort of classic studies um, that that once that could frankly do a little more with humans than we're allowed to kind of get past approval boards nowadays. But uh, there's no question that you fast uh, uh, someone and they're going to start to shift over to ketosis. Anybody would notice that very quickly uh, if, if they're tested it, very quickly. And so there's no question that the two of these these two ideas, a low carb, high fat, so called ketogenic diet, um, is complementary to fasting. If for nothing else, even when a, what I've found even when a person isn't deliberately fasting. When they're, when they're saying, okay, I'm not going to eat for the next 24 hours, yeah. for example, they end up simply fasting more because they're just so much more satisfied. Right. And the fact is fat satisfies. It fuels your body better than the other macronutrients. And you simply find that there are prolonged periods of not eating and you're perfectly comfortable with it. It's not even something you think of. Okay, you just said something in there. I know some listeners are going, please, Jimmy, ask him why he said that. So you said so-called ketogenic diet. Should we be calling it something else? Oh, no, no, I don't. Yeah, so no, I do mean that. Um, I, well, I guess, no, I guess I'd say that um, perhaps unintentionally. Okay. Um, just to emphasize that you wouldn't have to. Uh, I find that too often 
um, people balk at instituting uh, this sort of dietary change because to, for some people to get into true ketosis, that can be really difficult depending on sort of the degree to which they have to restrict carbs. And I'm not Especially saying that. Especially with IR. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you're insulin resistant, that's another, you could basically say that's a person who's carbohydrate intolerant. And for them, boy, a little bit of carbohydrate, a little bit of starch, or a yeah. little bit of sugar is going to immediately bump them out of ketosis. It's and like so, 10 times uh, the response in someone like that compared to a metabolically healthy insulin sensitive person. Yeah, right. Yeah, well said. So, Has that been quantified anywhere in research? I know my, my Keto Talk co-host, Dr. Adam Nally, talks about this quite a bit, that when you're insulin resistant, you tend to have kind of a, a multiplicity uh, response uh, insulin-wise when it comes to eating carbohydrate versus a metabolically healthy person. But have we had any science that actually shows that? Oh, that's a great question, Jimmy. And I, I'm not sure. I don't have a, I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the okay, insulin response. Okay, you're fired. No, no longer on the show. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, but no, there's no question, there's no question that it can be, it can be five to 10 times higher potentially yeah. in someone who's insulin resistant. I mean, I, I'm very com comfortable with those numbers. Well, that's why carb um, sensitivity and carb tolerance uh, level is lower in people with insulin resistance. It's why that carb needs to come down to get the same uh, response yep. as someone who would maybe eat 100 grams of carbohydrate and get the exact same response as you do at 20. Yeah, that's right. And so for me, um, as a scientist who's predominantly interested in keeping insulin low, albeit more and more interested in the benefits of ketones themselves, the ketones, once upon a time, for me, were strictly an indicator of how well am I keeping my insulin low. Because mm. whether you're insulin sensitive or insulin resistant, ketones represent a fairly objective marker, albeit across many different people of different body types and different metabolic health, if you will. Nonetheless, the ketones represent a sort of common ground that if my ketones are at one millimolar and your ketones are at one millimolar, it may mean that our insulin is actually a little different, but nonetheless, it's relatively somewhat comparable if, if we have disinhibited ketogenesis at the liver with whatever our level of insulin may be. So here's a question for you. Is it possible to have low insulin levels uh, and not have ketones present in the blood and at therapeutic levels? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But again, it would simply depend on the person. There could be someone who, for that individual, six microunits of insulin per mil of, of blood, of plasma, mm -hmm. that, that's, a, that's a good, that's a, so that we could call that a good number. And yet for their body, they might be better when their insulin levels are at two. You know, So that's three times higher than maybe what it wants to be yet. Yep. Yet for, for the, another person, six would be wonderfully ketogenic. And so if, there's so much variation, which is a complication of <laughs> working with humans, of course, and why it's a temptation to stick with rodents. That's why you have a job. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, we don't have all the answers. Thank goodness. Are you passionate about nutrition and looking for a way to start sharing your knowledge with others through a respected credentialed education program? Then check out the Nutrition Therapy Association NTA at nutritionaltherapy.com. The NTA trains and certifies nutritional therapy practitioners and consultants by emphasizing the bio-individuality and the wide range of dietary strategies that support overall wellness. The NTA encourages 
encourages local, whole, properly prepared, nutrient-dense foods as the key to restoring balance and enhancing the body's ability to heal. You can become a Nutritional Therapy Practitioner, NTP, in just nine months of 15 to 20 hours a week commitment, and it includes three multi-day hands-on workshops with live info sessions twice monthly. Registration is currently live through February the 6th, 2017, and financial aid is available as well. Learn more by calling the NTA toll-free at 800-918-9798 and sign up now for the 10th annual NTA conference coming to Vancouver, Washington on March the 3rd through the 5th, 2017. Learn more about becoming an NTP at nutritionaltherapy.com. you miss pizza because it's not a part of your low-carb lifestyle? Then let me introduce you to Real Good Pizza Company. Go to realgoodpizzaco.com and you'll see they have grain-free, gluten-free pizzas that are frozen, 25 grams of protein, 4 grams of carbohydrates, and lots and lots of healthy fats. They only use real food ingredients, almost no carbs, and it's perfect for any low-carb and ketogenic lifestyle. The crust is made from all-natural Parmesan and chicken. The chicken is antibiotic-free and hormone-free. The tomatoes in the sauce and the vegetables in the Supreme are non-GMO, and the cheese is locally sourced and all-natural as well. It's healthy, guilt-free pizza that actually tastes like a pizza. Again, it's called Real Good Pizza. Head on over to realgoodpizzaco.com and be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 10% off your order as well as free shipping. Real good pizza. So earlier I asked you the question about, you know, what are the signs of insulin resistance? And you said mainstream medicine pretty much looks at glucose almost exclusively. They pretty much ignore fasting insulin and even postprandial insulin. Are there any other markers that are relevant for people that might be listening right now that say, all right, I kind of get what would be the marker for insulin resistance, but is there anything else they need to be paying attention to? Yeah, so you can. So there, there, there's a few answers here. You certainly can look at your fasting glucose, and if it's generally above 110 to 126 milligrams per deciliter, that's state. in a fasted state. That's generally kind of uh, a, a cause for concern. But there was, uh, and mind you, there's another marker too. If you can get your fasting insulin, although if you have your fasting insulin, you've got enough, but if you're fasting insulin and you combine that with your fasting glucose, you can put that into a formula called the HOMA insulin resistance score. So Spell it's that. usually just, yeah, so it's just HOMA, H O M A. Okay. And that's, that's an acronym for the homeostatic model of assessment. And it's just an insulin resistance score. Um, and, and anybody could look this up online. And what are you looking for? Yeah, it's a pretty predictive number where you want your number to be, as you combine your insulin and your glucose and you divide it by this sort of arbitrary, I think it's 450, Mm -hmm. um, if your numbers are up to 1.5 or below, 1.5 or below, then... 1.5 1.5 and below represents an insulin sensitive person. One point above that up to 3.9 represents insulin resistance and four and above represents outright diabetes. Okay, and this, got so that's, me curious. I got to look this up now. <laughs> yeah, so this is one that's, there's a little more consensus, interestingly enough, with the HOMA score than there is with just plain old fasting insulin. Despite my deep love for fasting insulin and knowing that number, the HOMA score, again, 
is that the combination of insulin and glucose divided by that arbitrary number, it represents generally, you know, a bit more of a consensus where you get your HOMA score and then you get a, a pretty good idea of, of how you're doing with regards to where you are on the insulin sensitivity scale. Yeah, I just Googled HOMA calculator, H-O-M-A calculator, and it was like the second one. And yeah, you can you can run yep. that number. I'm looking at it now. And yeah, it, it it's pretty awesome. Uh, that's that's neat. I, I yeah, never and that's heard of the that. nice thing about that. The nice thing about that number is there there are many publications that will use that as their published marker of insulin. They might not be looking at the connection between fasting insulin levels or, or just plain old blood insulin, but they'll be using the HOMA score or the HOMA index um, in order to sort of make this classification. Like the the people with the highest in the highest HOMA index had the highest risk of you know, prostate uh, most aggressive prostate tumors, for example. So knowing what HOMA is and how to get it just gives a bit of an advantage in understanding uh, some, uh, well, frankly, a fair amount of publications in this in this domain. And then lastly, one other marker yeah. of, of a blood marker. This was just published just a couple weeks ago. I just made a tweet about this, that you can look at um, many of the typical um, blood panel numbers. It'll show your lipids like triglycerides and LDL and HDL cholesterol, and it'll show fasting glucose. This study found that you could – I want to make sure I get these numbers right. It was – you could take your triglyceride number and multiply it by your by, by your glucose number and then divide that by um, – oh, shucks. I'm, I need to try to remember this. Uh, you divide it by – Oh, shucks. Some other, some other number. Maybe I'll look it up in just a second. But you divide it by another number, and they, they found that if that number, that overall calculated number, was lower than eight, then uh, then you're, it was fairly reflective of you having a pretty low risk of insulin resistance or or a higher risk. In fact, let me let me tell you what that number is. Yeah, I found the HOMA one, by the way. The HOMA one is glucose times insulin and then divided by 405. And, uh, of course, you're looking at it, uh, glucose millimolars, uh, insulin millimolar. And then, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting test. So did you find what you were looking for? I did, yep. So it's the triglyceride glucose index, they called it. And it's, it's triglycerides times, so fasting triglycerides in milligrams per deciliter. And then it's multiplied by fasting glucose in milligrams per deciliter. And as you noted, sometimes these units will be millimolar or milligrams per deciliter. It just right. depends whether they're going metric or empiric. So these are both milligrams per deciliter. So you have triglycerides multiplied by glucose divided by two. And if that number is over roughly eight, then there's a cause for concern potentially. But of course, you'd want to follow that up with a fasting insulin test and really nail it down. So I just ran my HOMA insulin resistance score, and uh, as predicted, I was above that level that you said uh, would be insulin sensitive or lower. I'm, I'm at a 2.8. So I'm impressed that you know your fasting insulin. That's oh, I know all those numbers pretty good. <laughs> Attaboy. Good for you. I keep a, a voracious... I'm waiting for the home insulin test. I am so buying stock in that company once they have a home insulin. Now, I know there's oh, no you kidding. can mail order and, you know, you can do it at home and then send it in, but I want one where I can see it instantly. Oh, absolutely. I would... It's coming. Uh, a glucometer... It is coming. I know some scientists who are actively trying to overcome this hurdle and, and try to get a little drop of blood from a little prick in your finger and then get that insulin number. We don't have it yet, but... billion dollar company if they ever come out with that. Yeah, no kidding. It's so, so much... There'll be so many copycats when that happens to you. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's so much more helpful. That that fasting insulin number tells you so much more than your fasting glucose. They're related, but they're not the same. And right. insulin, in my opinion, really trumps fasting glucose. So what role does inflammation uh, play in all of this as well? Because it's also an ancillary marker that would show that you know disease state is happening. So an HSCRP or a homocysteine yep. or a cysteine level or an IGF-1 or any of these kind of main um, inflammation markers, what role do they play in insulin resistance? Great question. So in fact, that was the majority of the time I spent during my postdoctoral fellowship. It was looking at uh, inflammation and insulin resistance. And in fact, particularly looking at the effects of a saturated fat at the cell, which is very interesting to talk about and maybe worthwhile yeah. given that many people are eating a high fat diet and, and rightly so, mind you, I, I defend it. Um, but yeah, no, no question. Inflammation is a, is a fundamental process in the body. In fact, it's interesting to look at the interaction between these two essential systems, the metabolic system and the immune system, the immune system uh, allowing us to defend ourselves against uh, harmful stimuli and the metabolic system essential for not only fueling that immune system, allowing those immune cells to do their job, providing them the energy, but also simply allowing us to exist and harness the energy that's coming from the sun, going into the plants, then going from plant to animal or plant to human. Um, uh, in any instance, these are the two uh, if fundamental systems and, and they're heavily related and, and indeed any cause of inflammation uh, will promote insulin resistance. It doesn't matter whether it's a, um, a, a flu, a bit of a fever can cause an insulin resistance state. If you have a serious infection like a septic shock, that causes insulin resistance. Uh, and, oh, and that's it could, interesting. That, and it could represent a shift, you yeah. know, it, it could represent a shift in how the body wants you to start using fuel, I mean, it, perhaps, and perhaps this insulin resistant state. And there has to be some reason for the connection between these systems. And it may simply be an indication that if you're going to start fighting a sustained infection, let's start shifting um, towards uh, possibly having these cells using less glucose to fuel this prolonged attack uh, as the immune system has to be activated for a long time and perhaps letting it use more fat for fuel. That's purely speculative, but nonetheless, there's there's likely some reason for the body to become insulin resistant in response to inflammation. So, ben, but there's no question it happens. Ben, I have to ask this question uh, because it's the chicken or the egg uh, kind of argument here. So insulin resistance can't happen until inflammation is present first, or does insulin resistance itself lead to inflammation? Oh, good, great question. Yeah, so there's very little evidence to support the latter paradigm that you mentioned. Insulin resistance promoting inflammation, there's a little bit there, but I would say that's not the right way or not necessarily the predominant way. I mean, that could be possible, but no question inflammation is promoting insulin resistance, but I would not go so far to say that insulin resistance is necessary because I typically say there's five sort of pillars of maybe six, uh, six pillars of what's causing insulin resistance. Fat tissue and environmental toxins are kind of one and two, but interestingly, they're both acting through inflammation. So as your body's accumulating too much fat, particularly visceral fat, or, you know, in the abdominal space, that's promoting inflammation as you're inhaling cigarette smoke or diesel exhaust or eating, you know, harmful consuming harmful molecules that's promoting inflammation so inflammation itself yeah yeah right no kidding um and then a fourth one is stress chronic stress yes. whether it's just psychological or physical stress that can promote insulin resistance and then oxidative stress 
can promote insulin resistance. And yes. then lastly, what I consider the elephant in the room, because to me, it's the most important. And to me, uh, it's, it's the most overlooked, which is why I'm such an advocate of preaching it, if you will. Insulin itself will cause insulin resistance. Yes. And that's the one that we, we too often ignore. And it's distinct. It doesn't have insulin causing insulin resistance won't go through oxidative stress necessarily. Yes. It won't go through inflammation. It's just in and of itself its own cause of insulin resistance. So there's those those six sort of key ones, but mind you, the obesity-induced insulin resistance and the toxin-induced insulin resistance were both sort of hijacking that same inflammatory pathway or that inflammatory cause. So in that sense, it's kind of redundant and perhaps suggesting that of all of them, maybe insulin resistance is, is, sorry, maybe inflammation is the most relevant. But again, I submit that insulin itself is the key, partly because you can we can control that. As you know, you can drop your fasting insulin levels yeah. so quickly where yes. if you're an insulin-treated type 2 diabetic, you can get off all of your insulin shots in just weeks by simply consuming less glucose. I mean, it's it's so intuitive. It makes so much sense just yeah. when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yet we don't look at it as right. a common clinical course for the we disease. We the medical community, you're saying, yeah. Right, yeah, and even collectively, yes. you know, the average person, when you try to sort of educate them on the benefits of eating a diet that helps keep insulin low, in other words, low carb, high fat, there are so many hurdles that that they Mental that they hurdles, really, yes. that's right. There's so that's that's, that's, right, yes, the that's big one. Yeah, there's so many mental hurdles hurdles where the, where they will eventually reluctantly admit okay so eating low low, uh, low carb high fat sure it'll help me control my body fat but i'm going to die from heart disease yeah. and then you pull up some of those wonderful studies from volick and finney and you say all right well let's look at actually what happens to blood lipids well wow isn't it interesting they all get better right. wow so, so there you go one thing you did not mention in that list of things that lead to insulin resistance is the role that sleep plays. And I know I've seen many headlines and studies that talk about even missing just a couple of nights of good sleep can actually make your body more insulin resistant as well. Uh, what say you about all that? Oh, absolutely. So, in fact, I lumped that one under the stress category, mm. frankly. So, I put that under the physical, sure. psychological stress because it, it seemed it could be going through similar pathways. But no question, sleep deprivation uh, is is a cause, which to me is a concern. I have three little kids, and <laughs> and I'm I'm sort of the self proclaimed night watchman. And yes. So whenever. Exactly. When my six-year-old wakes up three times a night, well, daddy's on the case, you know. And yes. So and I, that doesn't I, help I, daddy sleep, so. <laughs> oh, no, no. She goes right back to bed, and it takes me another two hours, and then exactly. by that time, she's, she's waking up again. Daddy, it's time for breakfast. Come make me breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so I let her I let her crack the eggs after, after we make the bacon. Absolutely. Well, Ben, we could certainly wax eloquently about insulin resistance for a lot longer, but let's save that for the next time. Uh, I do have one last question because you did bring up uh, where you did your um, studying on saturated fat and its role in yes. inflammation. Kind of get into what you learned from all that. Yeah, thank you for giving me the chance to talk about that. So uh, for so long, so many studies look at the consequences of saturated fat on inflammation and insulin resistance. And I was sort of part of that problem where where you would you would say, for example, you would have muscle cells growing in a nice little petri dish. 
and you would put palmitate on there, you know, the most predominant saturated fat in the body. And then you'd see, wow, I put palmitate on these cells. And within just a few hours, insulin isn't working as well. So in other words, they become insulin resistant. Or you take rats and you infuse them with saturated fat. Or you take humans and infuse them with saturated fat. So I mean directly into the blood. And you see, wow, look at the harm this is doing. And I was... I, you know, here's my confession. I was part of that problem where we, we treat these mo- – we have these models, uh, whether it was infusing humans or rodents or dumping these fat on the cells. And we would say, oh, yep, saturated fat causes insulin resistance. And yet, shame on me as, as a physiologist. I'm someone who should be looking at the whole body. The effect of saturated fat as it comes to the cell itself in the body is not – the same as eating saturated fat because when you've eaten the saturated fat you of course are um, digesting it you are putting it into the you're putting it into the lymph system depending on the length of it or it just goes directly to the liver if it's medium chain or shorter triglycerides Um, and, and then the liver sort of decides what to do with it it will desaturate it it will turn it into ketones it will use it or it'll pack it up into a cholesterol molecule to be passed um, throughout the body um, or lipoprotein I should say with cholesterol right. and so there's so many fates of the saturated fat when you consume it and so the important takeaway from that is when we see when people are looking and they see a study that implicates saturated fat as a cause of insulin resistance we have to look at the model how are they how are they doing this and if they're infusing it or if they are dumping it on cells we can sort of nod our heads and say that's really interesting but it's not comparable to someone consuming saturated fat and indeed one of jeff volick's really neat studies was looking at putting people on low carb high fat and they were eating about i don't know three or four times more saturated fat than the low fat group right and yet the actual amount of saturated fats in their blood dropped I don't know, like 60% or something. It was less than the low-fat group. (laughs) Several times greater drop than the low-fat group. Right. And it could be be simply that when insulin is high, insulin is telling the liver to start taking any little carbons that are flowing through, whether it's glucose or amino acids, start taking these carbons and turn it into palmitate. And so the liver, when the liver sees insulin, it will produce saturated fats. And that's probably why if you're eating low carb, high fat, you're keeping your insulin low because fat is the one nutrient that won't increase your insulin when you eat it. Unless you and so the liver, it. yeah, yeah, possibly. Yeah. So the liver is then thinking, all right, I'm going to use the fat. And part of that use is turning it into ketones. And that's key. Uh, not to change the topic, that's key for understanding, for reconciling the endocrine and the caloric theories of why we get fat. But nonetheless, uh, saturated fat, when we consume it, is not the same as when you are infusing it directly into the blood. They're not, they're not parallel. They're not comparable. And so it's not fair to use those studies as a defense uh, or as an attack against saturated fat. Okay, Ben, you made my head spin on that last little statement about reconciling the endocrine versus calorie theories. Can can you kind of summarize what that means? Yeah, right. So, in fact, this is kind of what I'm going to be basing my talk on uh, at the Low Carb Breckenridge uh, at the end of next month. Um, And I'm thrilled. That'll be, again, I'm so looking forward to this. End of Uh, February, yeah. So, 
Yep, that's right. End of February. Uh, so the endocrine and caloric theories are just sort of how they sound. The caloric theory being that uh, thermodynamics, the laws of thermodynamics must be uh, embraced or cannot be broken. And so if you are consuming more energy than you're expending, well, then you're getting fat. If you're expending more than you're consuming, then you're losing weight. In contrast to that, the endocrine theory says basically – Insulin must be elevated in order for a body to gain fat. Um, and number of calories is then not quite as important. It's still relevant, but perhaps not quite as important. But but the fact of the matter is you cannot have a fat cell getting big in a normal individual, uh, well, in any individual, unless insulin is elevated. That is the only signal. In fact, I have my graduate class when I talk about metabolic function and obesity. I actually give them a week. I say, take a week at the end of the class, and I want you to find a cause of human obesity that doesn't somehow get connected back to insulin. And and we've not yet found one, whether it's <laughs> a cortisol problem or a brain pro- damage to the hypothalamus, yep. whether it's a thyroid problem. It all comes back to insulin. So the way we can possibly reconcile these things is that when insulin is low – well, or I should say with the caloric theory, we say that energy uh, can be only created or destroyed uh, is, or used uh, in the case of the human. However, the endocrine theory op- introduces a third avenue um, where it doesn't have to just be created or used. In the case of insulin being low and us producing ketones, we now have a third avenue or a third option because some of these ketones will be converted into acetone. And that's what we are exhaling when we breathe out when we're right. in ketosis, and that's what we're urinating out uh, when we're in ketosis. And so we're literally taking fat, a fat molecule, and the liver's cutting it up into these little pieces of carbons, and then we're getting rid of them. We're, we're just giving them out to the environment, whether it's through our breath or through urine. We now have a third option where it doesn't. we don't have to be responsible. We're not trying to reconcile this perfect thermodynamics of every calorie has to be accounted for in the body. In this instance, we're still adhering to the laws of thermodynamics and embracing the caloric theory, but when insulin is low, it gives us a little bit of wiggle room where we are now literally sort of wasting the energy. We're just getting rid of it from our body because we're cutting the fat up into little pieces, in other words, ketones, Mm -hmm. and then we're getting rid of them from the body. And so it allows you a little more wiggle room where you can perhaps eat, you know, a few hundred calories more potentially on low carb, high fat, and yet you're still losing weight. Um, The so-called metabolic advantage, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So when Tim Noakes just published his paper in, in the British Medical or British Journal of Sports Medicine just recently, that was one of his um, mentions there. And I, I was thrilled that so-called metabolic advantage, um, one of them is perhaps this idea of you're wasting the energy, you're getting rid of it from your body. Hmm. Not to mention the effect of ketones on metabolic rate itself, which is a different thing entirely. Mm-hmm. Man, we could go in a lot more directions, but you've given us a lot to think about here today. His name, Benjamin Bickman. Visit his website, insuliniq.com. And he mentioned a little bit earlier that he is quite the tweeter. And yes, he is on Twitter. It's Ben Bickman, Ph.D. That's B-E-N-B-I-K-M-A-N-P-H-D. If you want to follow him there, of course, we'll have all these links in the show notes section at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. But Ben, I look forward to sharing the stage with you at Low Carb Breckenridge a little bit later this month and so thanks so much for joining us here today on the living la vida low carb show 
Thank you so much, Jimmy. It was an absolute pleasure. Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have an engaging conversation all about a book called Honest Medicine. The author's name, Julia Shopik. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light.